Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. We're back. We're back. A little remote, but we're back. Yeah. So we apologize for the sound quality. It is not of our usual standard, but here we go. And we are back to dish on all things nutrition. see you. I yes. Guess see you is literal, <laughs> I guess. Because there you are yep. on my Zoom screen. Yeah. I know. Many, have you had a lot of Zoom meetings this month? I know you've been going into work maybe more than I have, but I have been, but been doing my share of Zoom meetings. Uh I'm I do a lot of public health like networking meetings and, and uh coalition meetings and uh all of those have gone to remote. So we do a lot of Zoom, which is what we're using today. And um, so hopefully it works out okay. And um, you all can hear us okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's nice it's to see you too. I limited. just, that's what I think I like about the the video meetings is, is I think for a long time, it's just kind of feeling that isolation of not having all these in-person meetings. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate the meetings that kind of encourage everyone to use their video so that yeah. you can actually see each other when you're talking. Makes a big difference. We've been, we've been using Zoom with the family. Um, oh, yeah. We, we were an hour and a half yesterday with my sisters and my parents, and even my parents, who are not the youngest people in the world, have figured out. My dad cracks me up. He's like, it's like you guys are there, except you know, <laughs> we didn't have to drive home afterwards. <laughs> yeah. There are I, there are some silver linings here occasionally for sure, and yeah, yeah I um truly yeah we are we did that we were supposed to go to Florida at the beginning of oh. April and of course we did not and so the first night that we were supposed to be on the beach uh, we did a Zoom meeting with everybody who was coming in to be on the beach and then I did a you can change your background on Zoom and I put a a sunset from last year up on my, yeah, so. Very nice. So you've been going into work, and I think, you know, for people who sort of wonder, you know, I think it's pretty well known what doctors and nurses do at this time and what emergency first responders do, and it's a pretty defined role. Yeah. Um, and yeah. people in grocery stores and things like that, but I'm right. not sure necessarily that people understand what dietitians do during this time. So we right. kind of thought it would be interesting to know that. And of course, we are only in two settings. Right. There are many other dietitians that work in a variety of settings, but we thought it might be good to let you in a little bit about what dietitians do during emergencies like this. And of course, neither of us have been through any of like thing like this. Nope. And <laughs> nobody can say that, honestly. Yeah. So we, we thought it would be kind of good to sort of dish a little bit about what dietitians do. Right. Um, well, and I think I'm, I'm very curious because I know what I've been doing, but I know your setting is completely different. So I think that's really good for us to talk about, too, is the different settings that we're in. So, yeah, my full-time job right now, I am a dietitian with Children's Hunger Alliance. And so we are a statewide nonprofit agency. And we serve hungry, our mission is to eliminate hunger in kids across the state of Ohio. And so, as you can imagine, 
uh, we've been even busier given everything that's going on. And maybe maybe you might not realize why that would be, but <laughs> other than the fact that a lot of people are losing their jobs and everything, but initially we were still even busy. When they stopped letting the kids come to school, that's when we had to really step up and pick up what we were doing. That was even before they did the stay-at-home orders for everyone. And the reason that is, is the work we do is, uh, if you think about a stool, like a three-pronged, it's not prong, though. (laughs) Three-legged stool. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. If you think of a three-legged stool, uh, when we're feeding kids, you know, we are feeding kids through a national program called CACFP, which is Child and Adult Food Program. And that program allows schools to feed kids who um, meet certain thresholds of income in their families so that Um, they can receive free and reduced meals while they're at school. So that's one part of the stool. The other part is SNAP money. So families receive money to help. Those families that are in need also receive money to help them with their meals for the month. That money does not go very far. Even with the kids in school, getting free meals at school the parents usually run out of money before the end of the month with SNAP. So the third leg of the stool is food banks. And so I imagine everybody is hearing a lot about food banks and kids who are hungry, families who are hungry, and a lot of that, it just all ties together. And so uh, at Children's Hunger Alliance, now we don't, we feed kids through the school the the child and adult food program for the after school settings so Mm -hmm. a lot of our kids are in these after school sites that will go home and sometimes they don't get another meal so we give them dinner and or snacks or something like that and sometimes that's the last meal they get until they get back to school the next day so if you think about that they just took away school (laughs) So when they took away school, they took away after school. They took away all those meals that those kids were getting during the day. And now it's back on the parents and it's back on this burden system that isn't sufficient to begin with. So it's... I'm I'm sure it's very, very complicated, but is the funding generally federal for this? Correct. So it's federal money that gets dispersed through the state. So... Um, we are what we call a sponsor of programs in the state of Ohio and all of our sponsorship, we work with the state governing agencies. We have to submit what we fed the kids, you know, did the temperatures, were the temperatures at the right temperature when we received the meals to feed the kids. And there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of rules and regulations. Now, as you can imagine, (laughs) A lot of those rules and regulations are very hampering right now. And luckily, a lot of the federal government regulations have been lifted. And um, for example, normally you have to feed kids in that after school setting. And it's very specific that, okay, this is the meal time. So from four to five o'clock, that's when you're feeding the kids. You can't feed them outside of that time. 
it's there's a, just so many rules there. So we've been allowed during this time to use a summer feeding site type thing. So it's not, and I don't even know, like this is not even my part of what I do at Children's Hunger Alliance, but I'm somewhat involved in that. And I don't understand all of the rules and regulations and um, I'm not on the side where we're actually applying for the meals. I'm really more on the education side, generally speaking. But with this going on, I have been pulled into helping to prepare meals and things like that. And they've changed the regulations. Like I said, it used to be a congregate setting. Now people are allowed to come drive up, say how many kids they have. We give them two meals. If they have two kids, we give them two meals, you know, for the kids. Whereas before we would have to see the kid, the kid would have to be there, you know what I mean? And it, it would have to be in this setting. We'd have to be educating the kid while they received it. We, you know, There's so many rules, but luckily that's not, we're not being held to those types of rules right now, which is really that's nice. Good. Yeah. So there are some good things happening that are making it a little easier for us. Uh, we worked with some partnerships. The problem we're having is a food supply chain issue right now. We have a pilot program going in the Columbus area with Panera Bread, and we're able to feed the kids using um, some resources that they've helped us with. So they're providing these great fresh meals with milk and everything um, every day at um, some of, several of our sites in Columbus. And um, that's helped a lot because otherwise we have been using our shelf-stable meals. So when this first hit, we were scrambling across the state to get all the meals that we had in stock in all these after-school sites and then pick them up and take them back so that we could be giving them out at these other sites because all the after-school sites are shut down. And so it was a logistic thing. And uh, once we went through all those meals, though, we're having supply chain issues getting proteins or, you know, shelf-stable milk, uh, believe it or not. So it's just having to, and then sometimes FEMA has been coming in and taking some of those supplies too, from a national standpoint. Just like you hear them taking away that PPE for medical staff, they're coming in and when we got shipments coming in and we think we're going to get a shipment and a delivery, all of a sudden it's gone. So same thing is happening with food. So we've been having to prepare these lunches and these shelf-stable meals ourselves in our central Ohio office. So for s- several weeks, uh, we were busy constantly creating meals. And we've kind of, now we're kind of like, when we get the components in, then we're packing meals. And and so far we've we've caught up and we're able to, to meet the needs right now. But so anyway, it's been interesting. And from a dietitian standpoint, how many kids? It, sorry, how many kids are you feeding on an average like weekday? When we first started, I know we had 60, 62 sites, and we were expecting maybe twenty kids at each site. Those numbers have ex, like exploded. At our one of our sites that were there for three hours, we do have about we on Friday we had over five hundred kids that we served. And luckily on the weekends, we're able to give them meals for the weekend too. So on Fridays, we're giving them like 
two meals and a bunch of shelf-stable meals so that they can last through the weekend. So when we have that, that's what we've been doing. So there have been a couple weekends where we didn't have the food, so we could only give them the one meal on Friday. And then, and so, yeah, that the demand is pretty high. I know we have, if anybody's interested, if you go to childrenshungeralliance.org and click on our, on the homepage, there's a thing that'll take you to our COVID updates. And we have a map that has all the locations that we're serving kids throughout Ohio. So if anybody knows anyone who's in need, they can go to that map and see where the meals are being distributed for the kids. Are meals distributed primarily by staff or are, are there volunteer opportunities for people or how does that work? Yeah, so primarily the sites that we work with are staffing it. In the central Ohio area, though, we do have three sites. So we're working, we just recently in the last couple of weeks, we're also working with Columbus City Schools. And so the Columbus City Schools was already giving out meals and now they've been given permission to also give them a shelf stable meal as well. So they can have an extra meal then now at those Columbus City School sites. And then we have other sites kind of filling in the gap where we know there's a higher need and there's not really a local Columbus City School close by. So we've been staffing those sites and doing those ourselves, which, um, and so usually, like I said, we're just kind of a sponsor of the sites and that's usually how it works. But in these particular sites, we have four sites in Columbus where we're actually, our staff is going out and distributing the meals ourselves. Um, yeah, so... I've been doing a hybrid of being in the office and then being at home working and doing my normal work and then going in and doing the packing the lunches and things like that. So, yeah, I can imagine that that's only going to grow, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah, I don't see an end in sight for for this, uh, for sure. So we'll we'll see. Yeah, what happens and how that transitions. We're still waiting to hear whether or not we'll be able to do summer sites at all. It sounds like if we do have summer sites, summer camps going on, I imagine the attendant, the uh, class sizes are going to be very, very limited. So I don't think that that's going to be available for everyone. So I think the need will continue at least through the summer. And then I don't know what's going to happen in the fall. You know, I, I, um, my husband is a teacher and, and I appreciate the stress that he's gone through with, you know, transitioning things online and, and those types of things. I think that we don't give schools enough credit oh. for what they do for kids for lifestyle things as well. Yeah. Whether that's food or services, um, that kids receive through the public schools. Yeah. Um, we, we think, oh, it's just making sure they can do their math at home. That's only just a small fraction of yeah. what schools really, pun intended, what <laughs> schools really do for our kids. Yeah. And I think that... It's the social... Are, right. The social-emotional side is really important for our kids, too. And so, yeah. And if, and if they aren't eating, you know, the least of their concerns is their language exactly. arts homework. Exactly. You know, and I, I know that some some schools, and, and I'm sure every school deals with this to some degree, you know, kids who are, and maybe we're, we're fortunate in parts of Ohio where internet is plentiful, 
can afford Chromebooks to send home with kids and things like that. But I certainly know that's not the case everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, but if a kid is not able to eat breakfast or lunch, again, the least of my concerns is whether they're keeping up in math. It, right. it just is. Yeah. They're keeping up in life at that yeah. point. For sure. And, and it's a completely unfair situation because it's certainly, of course, they did nothing to cause this. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. very unfortunate and it's very, it's just a problem that I'm not sure how long it's going to last and what we're going to do. We are getting creative. Uh, my, my dietitian team is getting really creative. I do have a dietitian in Cincinnati, so she's not, they're not doing meals down in Cincinnati or anything like that. She did help us collect some meals at one point, but generally speaking, she's doing all of our other work. And a lot of our work could transition to remotely. So we do uh, visits with in-home family child care providers to help them become what we call an Ohio Healthy Program. And uh, so we work with Ohio Healthy Programs and we work with people across the state. And we've been given permission instead of face-to-face interviews and technical assistant visits, we can do that via remotely. So we've been doing that and she's continuing that work. And so, and, but we've also gotten requests to pivot, like you said, the schools are doing. And so program that we do, it's called catch coordinated approach to child health. And we go on site and we do classes and activities with the kids. And we got challenged and asked from an organization who was doing remote work with their kids still could we do a group class and do it online so and so they wanted a 10 minute video created with the content so all the kids watch that 10 minute video and then they get online and do a class with our uh, dietitian so you know i think we're all just getting creative and figuring ways to get around this and using the technology and and I think there are some positives here and there every once in a while that we can find too and, and make things work. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to consider with the kids being at home and being able to participate in that type of thing too. So, right. yeah. So, and I know that, you know, as dietitians, we're all about, you know, the balance and things like that. And sometimes I think it's just more important that kids eat. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I have an organization here in Marysville that collects food to send home in backpacks, and I love this program. We donate to it regularly. But, you know, I think, oh, I'm buying Pop-Tarts or I'm buying Easy Mac, or, but I'm like, you know what, it's food. It's, yeah, sometimes it's that, calories. that's all we need to do is get them some food. And while we are trying to make the, the meals balanced and the best we can, we have been having some give and take that's what's something that some people don't understand about the CACFP rules around the meals and what you can and can't serve is some of those Pop-Tarts and some of those things that if they're purchased for the CACFP program, they actually have to meet certain standards. So they're fortified and they have vitamins and minerals in them. Right. So uh, we do try to get the most bang for our buck for these shelf-stable meals. So even though they're shelf-stable meals does not mean that they're not balanced. And in fact, I was doing some nutrition analysis of our shelf-stable meals versus our hot meals. And nutritionally, they are very similar because they have to be. And so, 
you know, major difference. Believe it or not, my hot meals, I was really surprised to learn it was higher in sodium than... Oh, I can't believe that. I can't either. <laughs> but uh, though, if you think about it, when you're creating hot meals for a large group of people, they t sometimes put a lot of salt in it for preservatives as well as taste. And so it was very comparable. The differences were not that huge. So when you say shelf-stable meal, I, can you give me an example of what, what something, I mean, I kind of have an idea in my head of what that would sure. look like. But... Yeah. So I think right now what we're packing is a shelf-stable milk, a shelf-stable fruit. So a, a juice, a can, a, a, a container of fruit packed in juice and mm -hmm. like some sort of whole grain cracker or something. So we've been doing a lot of graham crackers. That's all I packed for a long period of time. We mixed it up a little bit. I think um, they have different varieties. They have like pizza crackers and different kinds that are out there. And then we have like a wow butter instead of peanut butter. And uh, a lot of times that requires us to have some other protein source with it. So we, we had ordered meat sticks, but they didn't come in. So <laughs> we've got some sunflower kernels. There's some chickpeas and things like that that we're trying to get to fill that in. But with the milk, we've got some good protein there. So I'm feeling better because our first stab at meals initially was we just did two fruits the peanut butter and the graham crackers. And so, you know, that was, yeah. you know, we did a lot of peanut butter. We did, you know, <laughs> multiples to try to pump up the protein, but you know, yeah. it's just, yeah. So that's kind of what it is. What's the ages that you serve? Uh, we will serve any age. So if they come to the site, we will serve, um, any kids up to 18. I, we usually don't ask ages either. We really have just been asking the parents, do you have any kids? And so wow. sometimes they'll say grandkids, you know, and sometimes they're living with their grandkids and we're like, well, if you're living with the grandkids, yes, here, we can give you the meals. So, yeah. Such important work. And I think again, this work is only going to grow yeah. and, you know, for reasons that are not under anybody's control at this right. point. Right. And I just hope that people will continue to get behind this kind of stuff and realize the importance of feeding kids. Yeah. We and have, not just, this is a place to cut funding. Yeah. Yeah. We felt very supportive by the community. And so Wonderful. that's been good. Yeah, for sure. So, Amy, what have you been up to? So, so. Uh, clinical, being, working in a hospital has been um, an interesting time. I can't imagine. We were, we were alerted to COVID in mid-March, well, early March that this was coming. And mm -hmm. so I started getting my ducks in a row pretty quickly because I was reading about COVID and some of the clinical things that I, I expected that were coming scared the scared the crap out of me honestly <laughs> i mean yeah and began to read about experiences of dietitians in the u in like in italy yes and, and in the uk 
And there were some really concerning scenarios that were going through my head of how would we handle it. And, I, and to be fair, I'm in a really small hospital mm-hmm. with limited, uh, we have ICU beds. We don't have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, a, a few, but we have, you know, a, a limited uh, acuity of patients. Typically patients that are really, really sick and ventilated don't stay at right. our hospital. They get transferred to a bigger facility. And okay. the word became that, you know, we might need to prepare for those patients to stay with us. Yeah. And these were patients that I, in many situations I had never seen, would be preparing to see patients as sick as I had ever seen, maybe since my internship was what, which was at a large hospital. But I've worked in small hospitals now for so many years that I don't really remember working with those types of patients. Right. Um, what I would do. Um, I don't so, I don't know if a lot of people know like the dietitians were even part of that hospital setting and how what the role is for dietitians maybe you can talk right. about like what your role is just in general too. So a couple of things that I had researched about covid was the nutritional consequences of of getting this disease dealing with kind of that ICU setting and then recovery from the disease. And this is what I'm starting to read about now. Okay. Um, is I see you at these recovering patients that after they get out of the ICU and either are transferred to a facility or go home, what, what are their nutritional needs? But generally as, an, as a dietitian, you know, my job is to assess where there might be nutritional issues in terms of if they're on a ventilator, they're certainly not eating by mouth. And so now we need to feed them what we call Enterally or tube feeding, I guess, is the best way for a, like a lay person to think about it. Mm-hmm. So we have a certain formulas that we use that are nutritionally complete, have all the vitamins and minerals, all the calories and protein and fat that you would need, mm-hmm. but it's fed through a tube. And again, nobody likes to think about this stuff, right. but this is how you feed a patient on a ventilator. When, yeah, yeah, because they can't eat, right. right. <laughs> but what's fascinating to me about COVID is outside of those ventilated patients, there are nutritional consequences due to the loss of taste and smell. Yes. And this is a big thing for dietitians, in my opinion. Yeah. Because how much of your food enjoyment, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> comes from taste and smell. Right, right. And so when people have no impaired taste and smell, which is now becoming, from what I understand, a major sign Interesting. of COVID. Wow. It's like considered a sign. If you don't have other signs, but you have a loss of taste and smell, even if you don't have a fever, you might want to be concerned that you have this. Right. Right. That that this is a a real barrier to getting nutrition into these patients because food is no longer enjoyable. Right. You know, things don't taste. I've been reading case reports of, you know, say, oh, I've been trying to eat eggs and it tastes like garbage. And, you know, again, eggs don't taste like garbage. So... (laughs) I I really think the loss of taste and smell is a big concern for the patients that are able to eat. Now I'd heard about that. How long does that taste of that loss of taste and smell go away? I've heard some people that I know that think that they had it. They said they lost their, that taste for about five days, but are you finding three days to weeks? Wow. Um, And yeah, what I have read now is that, you know, they, they kind of threw this around as a, a possible symptom early on, but maybe it's some other stuff. And yeah. now it looks like it is a, a predominant symptom in many people, particularly people who have more mild cases. Uh-huh. Um, 
that if you are a pretty healthy person, you lose your taste and smell for no reason at all, you don't have something else going on that you might want to be concerned. Right. Um, yeah. That you have, even in the absence of other, you know, pretty significant symptoms. That's what I've heard. Um, you can have just so that. that. Right. So that's kind of what I'm, you know, from a dietitian's perspective. So like I said, I began to research what's going on in other countries. The other thing to remember is that COVID is new to everyone, right. <laughs> including dietitians. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like I'm getting new information every single day about medical consequences, nutritional consequences. There is a webinar running, it seems, every day yeah. um, from some organization that's giving me more information. Mm -hmm. um, it does seem to me that the guidelines have changed every day in terms of, okay, we're talking about how much protein does somebody need? How many calories do they need? What if they're overweight? What do we do then? How do we adjust for the ventilator? How do we adjust for the sedatives? That it just feels like it's information overload. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm trying to keep up on that stuff. So, you know, even though we've been pretty fortunate in our county, that we have not seen and frankly fortunate in Ohio. And I think we have to give credit to our public officials. I, yes. I know nobody right now, but I do because I feel like they have not only flattened the curve, they squashed the curve Yeah, and they have kept hospitals from being completely overrun and unprepared and looking like New York city. Right. Because absolutely. I feel very strongly that Cleveland or Columbus could have looked like New York city. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and it would have been ugly. Uh -huh. So I feel like very strongly that, but I still feel like I'm going to end up having to deal with patients on the long haul here, because even if those patients, you know, even if we don't end up with you know all of our ICU beds full at some point, we're going to continue to see these patients on a rolling basis until there's some type of treatment or vaccine. Yeah, and so I'm going to continue to need to be prepared. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is something that, you know, again, I, I have colleagues that are in New York City. I have colleagues that I, um, I've, I've joined several Facebook groups for just for dietitians for this condition. Good. And good. reading some of those stories. I mean, again, like I said, for about the first week of this, I had serious stress. Yeah. Of nightmares of thinking, how am I going to handle this when this hits us? Right. Am I ready? Do I know what I'm doing? I began to develop guidelines for our office of what we were going to use with do with our patients. Yep. And here, here's the standards we are going to use. I've laminated them for you. This is what we're <laughs> going to do when this happens. Yeah. So, to, even to just secure equipment, you know, two well, feet yeah. don't run on their own. They run <laughs> Right. You know, do we have enough of those? If you don't have enough, what are you supposed to do then? Um, yeah. Do you have enough formula for it? Are there back orders now of this formula that you're going to be using? Is it a formula you don't normally use? You know, we oh. use a certain type of formula in most of our ICU, our tube-fed patients. Well, that's, that one's not going to fly with mm. COVID patients. So we have to come up with a different formula that we would use with those because they're critically ill. All kinds of, of, of different things that occur. Patients that have COVID that are very sick often do better breathing when they're on their bellies. Uh -huh. And I've, I've never heard that. Patient that position yeah <laughs> so I don't know how oh. to do that so that yeah. is something that you know I'm taking experiences from other colleagues to enrich my own practice and then say okay if I end up you know I hope not if I end right. up having to do this I need to know how it can be done or how other facilities have done it right. so then I can to my own facility yeah um, 
Yeah. Again, the crazy part is just us a learning curve because, you know, we're all learning together. We're all figuring out, well, that didn't work. Yeah. You know, this particular strategy for conserving tube feeding pumps doesn't work, mm-hmm. but this one does. Yeah. And so it feels like every day I'm just getting new information and taking notes. Okay. If we need this. How am I going to deal with this? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing this hospital in, you know, Texas is doing this. And so here's what we could do. We're a similar size facility. Um, okay. And kind of, I hate to say kind of stealing ideas, but all, you know, kind well, of working together and saying, yeah. you know, okay, we're out of pumps. What are you guys doing? Right. And okay. Well, we're not out of pumps yet, but um, right. if you are, yeah, here's how we're going to deal with it. Yeah. So I think people understand that the dietitian is more than just feeding breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. Um, it's important that I, you know, have my patients eat, but it, it gets a lot more complicated than that, especially in the clinical setting, especially right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to totally get myself up to date on a lot of things. And yeah, I mean, not that I think a lot of dietitians are doing that. I hear so many, I've said it several times. I just heard you saying it, you know, just things change every hour. You know what I mean? There are things that just keep just a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving pieces. And the same thing is true, I think, in a lot of different situations. And uh, it's just, it it can be overwhelming to keep up, but um, it sounds like you're, you're hanging in there, which is good. And like you said, it's our government in Ohio has done a really good job of, of flattening the curve and squashing right. the curve. And hopefully we can continue to see that uh, I don't know how you feel about like the opening up. I think there's a lot of uh, hesitation for me on my side and because I worry about you and I worry about the dietitians in the hospitals and the hospital workers and how much they've had to do. And hopefully, yeah, I just I worry about overwhelming the system. But I, I feel like our government has done a good job of staying on top of it. And so, and they're trying to be cautious. So, but you're right. I should rather it be a trickle than than blood, you know? Yeah. Even if it trickles for the next, you know, 18 months or two years or however long this takes um, to develop some type of effective treatment or prevention, I'd much rather be seeing, you know, a few patients every week than a hundred patients on a Tuesday, right? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, I'd just rather see, you know, this gradual, similar to what we see often with flu, right? Where you just people, especially in the winter, sort of trickle in. Yeah. You know, maybe you have two or three patients, two at least in our hospital because we're so small. Yeah. Two or three patients at a time, mm-hmm. and they trickle out, and two or three more come in, and right. you know, then they go. And that's what I'm hoping with COVID can be a situation where we can, you know, and and, and it's funny because. Um, I think I saw a meme that, you know, the ending of the lockdown does not mean this is over. The ending means that there's a bed for you. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Interesting. And I think in Italy, they couldn't say that. And in New York City for a time, they couldn't say that. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, what I hope is that there's now a bed for every COVID patient that needs one. Right. In the state. Yeah. And that we can, can ma- maintain that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I worry about the loss of other healthcare services. We, you know, I, I did my first telehealth on Friday. Yeah. Um, my first telehealth patient, it was interesting. 
because it, the technology isn't perfect sometimes with that, just as yeah. it is when we are together. But that's where dietitians are heading is into telehealth, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and you know, I got certified quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with, and it was like, uh, you know, the we have a, a girl at the hospital that does that for providers in the hospital, and she she was flying on it. Um, very little information needed. She was able to get it taken care of. So I really think that that's that's that, and maybe that's a positive that comes out of this is that telehealth will become more predominant and right. allow patients who can't come in to see me to be able to see us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do worry about the loss of other health care. I worry about people putting off their diabetes appointments. I worry about people putting off their primary care appointments and missing their diabetes diagnosis right. or missing their heart disease or, you know, um, you know, not getting to cardiac rehab. I worry that there are other consequences that are going to bite us eventually. Yeah, I think that can go both ways. I mean, I think, okay, well, there's maybe a lot more people cooking a lot more meals from scratch and from at home. So maybe there's a little bit better nutrition because you're home and maybe you can stay on top of it better. Although then you, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's interesting what's going to happen in the long run with this, I think, in terms of our diet and the changes Will it be positive or to your point, will it be also, could it be negative? I hear a lot of people who are snacking all the time and I've gained a lot of weight. And so if, you know, that, you know, if we start seeing blood sugars getting out of control and, you know, and yeah, we could see more diabetes. We also know, we know food insecurity does not help the problem of overweight and obesity. Right. And we have more food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Think about even just like True. the stress levels of children. You know, you know, right. they talk about, you know, overweight and obese adults thinking back to formative experiences of not having enough food as a kid. And, mm-hmm. and would that be a situation that they kids now, you know, in 20 years right. will be experiencing the stress level that COVID has put upon them? Yep. I also think, you know, my kid is less active and that worries me a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. He's doing school in front of the computer. He's not changing classes. He's not getting up and walking around as much, you know, and then his leisure time activity also is screen time. Um, And (laughs) I've never really pushed that because I know that that that's how he connects with his friends. Right. He can't see his friends, but he connects them with them on a video game server. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say, well, no, you need to go outside by yourself because he doesn't have siblings and and play. Right. You know, you need to go by yourself and take a walk or something like that because he, he needs to see how he connects with his friends. Yeah. Are on these, you know, game servers. Yeah, and I don't want to say we can't do that because you've been too much time in front of the computer today. Yeah, and work and things like that. That's an interesting it's point. The really tough balance. It really so, is. Yeah, yeah. So much to think about. So, well, it was nice to catch up and yes. get back together and. Yeah. And we're really sorry we missed everyone and glad to be back a little bit. And we're going to try and do this remotely and see how this goes so please forgive our technology and our sound we'll see how it ends up but and hopefully we'll be back to be physically together as soon as it's safe to do so so yes we do like your show ideas we still have our website going so if you have ideas we'd love to hear them dish at secretliferd.com you can visit us on instagram at the secret life dietitians you can also check us out on Twitter at @tdietitians, and we look forward to seeing you next time wherever you get your podcasts.